0: This is John Quinn, and this is Law Disrupted. And today we have the privilege of speaking with Michael Hausfeld of Hausfeld LLP. Michael has been, is now, and has been for many, many years, one of the leading plaintiffs, antitrust lawyers in the United States, if not the world. He has been a competitor of our firm, Quinn Emanuel. He's been an adversary. He's been a co-counsel with our firm. So We've worked with Michael over the years in every possible way. You can work with another colleague in the the profession. And we're here today to talk about an incredible result that Michael got on behalf of a a class in an antitrust case, the Blue Cross Blue Shield MDL, which recently settled for $2.67 billion. Michael, that, that is a big number.
1: Yes, there's a lot of subscribers.
0: Tell us a little bit about this case. What What was the background to it?
1: The background was interested in the health insurance uh, industry in the United States and the fact that clearly one of the major expenses consumers are faced with is health insurance and, and the cost of health care. Blue Cross is the single largest national provider of health care insurance with over 100 million subscribers um, dealing with both individual local, regional, and national businesses and entities. The issue really arose um, as a result of a combination of particular, um, what we identified as restraints imposed upon what they call the the Blue Network, where each individual Blue Cross entity was considered an independent entity, yet none could compete for healthcare insurance in any other state outside their designated territory. In addition, although they had the right to engage in competition as non-Blue entities, that competition was limited in and of itself. So putting those two restraints together, there clearly was a limitation on the imposition of competition by and between the most significant potential competitors for health care insurance in the United States.
0: So these were ostensibly separate entities, but the case you were, at, you were able to develop was that they really had allocated markets between themselves and basically had agreed not to compete with each other, essentially? Yes. And there was also a agreement to boycott aspect to it as well?
1: That, I think, is more of the provider complaint, not the subscribers.
0: Okay. So is there a separate case or cases relating to providers?
1: Yes, and that is still ongoing.
0: I see. So the case that was settled were just the subscribers, and those are basically individuals or employers, or or who are the class members?
1: Both. You know, um, pension funds, other types of organizations, companies like uh, Lowe's and, and Alaska Air,
0: when did these cases originally start? It's an MDL, so I'm assuming that there must have been many, many cases start around the country.
1: It started, I believe, if I'm correct, in 2008.
0: And how many cases altogether were there that were consolidated in the MDL proceedings?
1: I believe there were at least 37, if not more.
0: And how did your firm originally get involved in these cases?
1: A number of other firms came to us suspicious of the absence of competition, you know, among the blue companies and asked us if we could see whether or not there possibly wasn't an trust violation.
0: And so these were when you say other firms came to you, they were competitors who worked in the health insurance field.
1: Some were competitors, um, some were colleagues.
0: So 2008 and, and this the settlement was announced this year, I believe. Yes. All right so this is this represents 14 years of work on behalf of you and and your colleagues who represented the class. Yes. And and where was the MDL centered? What what court had the MDL?
1: Birmingham, Alabama.
0: Uh, was there a dispute in the beginning was that contested as to whether the where the MDL would be?
1: I believe there were alternate suggestions and the MDL panel decided uh, to centralize everything in Birmingham.
0: And how far did, uh, I assume, that the case got well into discovery? Can you tell us a little bit about how how much the case was litigated? It obviously wasn't tried, but how far did you get into the case in the pretrial proceedings?
1: There was no limitation you know, of discovery. There were numerous depositions, hundreds of thousands, if, if not close to millions of, of documents you know, uh, produced years of disputes with special master on privilege the case was fully factually developed before a motion for summary judgment was filed
0: mm-hmm. years of disputes with a special master on privilege that that's remarkable
1: yes i mean I, there were hundreds of thousands of documents for which privilege was claimed and i think statistically the blues lost the majority of, of those claims um, as decided by the Special Master.
0: I mean, did the Special Master actually review hundreds of thousands of documents, or or how were those resolved?
1: Every single one.
0: Amazing. And you said there were a number of depositions taken. Can you give us some idea uh the number of depositions that were taken?
1: There were a number of depositions taken of, of subscribers and of companies, and there were a great many depositions taken uh, of Blue Cross officials, and then there were all the depositions of the myriad of experts.
0: And that was gonna be my next question, the experts. What types of experts did the parties have?
1: Mostly ec- economists, you know, and um, experts generally in the healthcare, you know, insurance industry. The judge implemented uh, a very novel, almost ingenious process, where he had two what he called economics days, where off the record, he had the economists in to educate him as to the factors that each of sides' economists were focusing on in making their determination as to whether there was a restraint, whether the restraint caused antitrust impact, and could that impact be measured.
0: So were these economists, what sorts of analyses did they do to support their conclusions that there either was or was not some type of unlawful restraint?
1: you had to look at, at the two restraints in combination then you had to d- to look at the blue network as a whole determine if there were independent blue companies that were in essence ready willing and able to compete if there weren't the restraints then what was the economic profitability of other areas in which they could attempt to enter and offer competitive health care insurance and then how the markets would grow within each of those areas in in which entry was sought. So mm. it was one of the most complex uh, antitrust analyses I've ever dealt in. Unlike a you know a more traditional cartel where there's a claim of inflation of a price and you need to determine just the but for price.
0: And in this case, you had to you had to actually model the marketplace and identify. Uh, what the results of the restraints were, and and actually use that to prove the underlying restraints.
1: Yes, and also what entry would look like. You know, in, in the healthcare market, it it wasn't clear that entry would be attempted on, for example, an all-in state, you know, um, presence. So you needed to see which areas within the state, you know, would be entered first, how that might grow, and whether or not even with that entry and growth. Would the entire state be offered a, a competitive, you know, uh, plan?
0: I mean, did this involve trying to identify potential entrants and, and do it on a state by state basis? Yes. That sounds like kind of a mind boggling job, enormous see job what, to do. We
1: had one of the more brilliant healthcare care, you know, economists, Ariel uh from Harvard helping us out because what you needed to do was look at one state, see what, the entry would be, and how that entry would be, and then model that or extrapolate that for all forty-nine other states.
0: And uh, did the parties join issue then on a state-by-state basis as to this analysis? Like, you know, this doesn't work in Illinois, or how it would play out in Oregon. Was it that kind of detail? That
1: was where the, that's where the experts came in. Yes,
0: right. And how many experts were there on both sides?
1: I think um, the plaintiffs had to four, and the defendants had that many, if not some, somewhat more.
0: What do you think was the most significant, most compelling evidence at the end of the day that you were able to develop on the plaintiff's side?
1: It was the combination of restraints, both by the Blues themselves, by limiting uh, the, the, um, each of the Blue entities to a particular territory, on top of the fact that the Blues... Um, were allowed to compete on a non-Blue basis but with limitation. Putting those two together, it, it clearly uh, made the network non-competitive as well as impacting the ability to open the network to um, otherwise expected you know, market entries.
0: What defenses did the uh, defendant put up?
1: That they were in- entitled by Trademark to maintain independent territories, that these were um, vertical restraints, not horizontal restraints. Th- those were basically
0: it. By trademark, I mean, that, that strikes me kind of a, as a novel defense to an antitrust claim.
1: Not really. There, There are some trademark cases where individual territories or exclusive territories are given. This went beyond that. It also brought into question the Supreme Court's precedents in Topco and Sealy top as to whether these were vertical restraints um, which should have been uh, judged by uh, the rule of reason as opposed to per se restraints.
0: Mm-hmm. And they they argued that these were vertical restraints. What was the theory that they advanced in that regard?
1: That the Blue Cross Association stood above you know all of the individual entities and therefore whatever restraint flowed from the from The agreements with the association were vertical in nature as opposed to horizontal.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, ultimately, you you said summary judgment motions were filed. Were the summary judgment motions decided or the case settled before they were decided?
1: I, I guess I should have been more circumspect. It wasn't a summary judgment motion. It was a motion to determine the applicable principle of law, whether the restraints would be judged under the per se standard or a rule of reason.
0: Like a partial motion for summary judgment on that issue? Yes. And did that come down to, you know, putting the question to the court, were these vertical restraints or horizontal restraints, essentially?
1: That was one of the issues put before him and whether or not this was a combination uh, or what he referred to as the of restraints. And he determined that the standard of accountability would be per se.
0: And I assume the day you got that ruling had to be a really good day for the plaintiffs. I would think the defendant had to see the handwriting on the wall then.
1: It was good for about 14 days until they filed a <laughs> notice of appeal. And they did take it up to the 11th Circuit. The 11th Circuit held it for some period of time, but then decided that without opinion to leave the decision of the district court as is.
0: Okay. And when was that, that it came back from the 11th Circuit?
1: Probably about two or three years ago. Uh-huh.
0: And how long after that did the case settle?
1: It still wasn't that quick. The, there were many blue defendants. There were rooms sometimes negotiating. It started with Judge Lane Phillips and then went to two authors and ultimately wound up with Special Master uh, Edgar Gentle. Some of the negotiating rooms had over 100 participants, not only representing the blues, but the blues... Uh, insurance companies, then the secondary insurers, as well as all of the counsel, you know, for the individual uh, subscriber plaintiffs.
0: So all the blues were defendants in this yes. proceeding. Yes. And, and you went through several different mediators and a, a special master before you're able to reach a settlement. Yes. What ultimately was the uh, breakthrough that enabled you to settle the case, do you think?
1: I'm not being flippant, but I'd like to say common sense.
0: <laughs> okay. It's just, I mean, it's sometimes in settlement negotiations. It's, it just takes some time and a lot of talking and going back and forth before you reach a settlement, which in hindsight, it sometimes seems the parties should have been able to reach much earlier.
1: The most difficult part of the settlement was the injunctive relief, because unless there was a change in the structure, you know, uh, as to the way um, the network operated, then the damage would just continue if the structure remained the same. So that that became, I felt, the the tension point and the turning point. And, but that's where most of the negotiating time and, and the, the hard decisions needed to be made. What changes would the Blues accept to their structure, which had been in place for over a hundred years Um, which would open the system to competition on a meaningful basis.
0: I mean, that's interesting. So it wasn't so much the $2.6 billion, but getting agreement on the whole change of their business structure.
1: Yes. In changing their business structure, it was clear from our economists that could and would have an effect on healthcare insurance generally, because other companies then would have to compete with the now invigorated competitive you know blue network
0: so what what was the change in the structure that's reflected in the injunction
1: there were a number of changes dealing with with the territories um but the one of the keys factors of what uh health care insurance has now broken down um into let's say two major segments and one being the national account segment where you have large you know entities um with thousands of employees basically getting a single bid by a particular healthcare insurer. What we were able to do is get that group of national accounts, multiple bids at their choice. That was the key. So it wasn't that whoever within the system could offer a bid, it was the fact that the account itself would get one bid, But then it could ask for, you know, and and tell, you know, another blue specifically that it wanted a bid from it as well. Mm -hmm. And then there are other individual um, national accounts that have, pursuant to the settlement agreement, the right to sue for what they called individualized injunctive relief. And that's to ask for more than just one additional, you know, bid from, from a blue account.
0: But the the upshot is is that subscribers and uh, certain accounts will be able to get bids from multiple blues is that essentially Correct. right? Uh-huh. Yes. And how do you think this will change the market for insurance?
1: The the national account market is, is a benchmark, you know, for the remaining of, uh, portion of the market and if there is greater competition Among all the insurers with regard to the national account market, that should affect their competition for all uh, insurance coverage, both nationally, you know, and locally and regionally.
0: So how many defense side lawyers were there that you were dealing with? A
1: multitude. (laughs) Um, The association had their lawyers, each Blue Cross entity had their own set of lawyers. The courtroom was always packed (laughs) with legal, legal representatives.
0: And, and I assume that there were a, a multitude of lawyers, obviously, on the plaintiff's side as well. In terms of the leadership on the plaintiff side, h- how many lawyers were there? Often there's a, a leadership committee, I know, in plaintiffs uh, class action and trust cases.
1: On the plaintiff's side, David, Boys and myself were the co-lead counsel. And then we had an executive committee uh, of about five beneath us. The defendants principally were represented um, by Kirkland Ellis. Uh, and they had their own group underneath them as as well assisting on behalf of the individual entities.
0: So what what was there any, some particular event or events that you would point to as you know being sort of the breakthrough in being able to get a resolution of this of these cases?
1: I think everything derived from the judge's decision on the standard of accountability, and then reinforced by the Eleventh Circuit's um, affirmance of that decision, and then the reality um, and the common sense of what do we do to see if there could be structural relief that would be acceptable to the Blues and beneficial you know, um, to the subscribers.
0: I assume that you put in some application for attorney's fees. I don't know whether that attorney's fees have been determined or whether there's any public information on that.
1: Yes, the court approved an attorney's fees of I think
0: 23%. And can you give us, so that would have been roughly?
1: Approximately 670 million.
0: Right. And that's shared among all the lawyers on the defense side, I assume. Yes. I assume that the plaintiff side lawyers had to submit a fee application showing all the hours they put in over all these years. I mean, do you have any ballpark estimate about what that was? How much time had been put in on the plaintiff side?
1: I don't recall.
0: (laughs) Right, I'm sure it was a very, very big number.
1: It was huge, given the activity in the case.
0: Right. So, as you look back on this, uh, you know, 14-year project, as you think about it, what will stand out most in your mind about this case?
1: Again, the fact that you know the private bar can effectively not only recover civil damages, but negotiate and receive uh, civil injunctive relief which otherwise is almost exclusively reserved for regulatory agencies.
0: Right. And to really kind of restructure a business in that way is is remarkable. It's kind of like the breakup of AT&T in a a way on a Mm -hmm. different scale. Yes. Well, congratulations on this uh, fabulous result. Can you tell us about some of the other cases that you're working on now?
1: We have a case in, in the pharmaceutical field dealing with HIV drugs and whether or not a branded manufacturer unlawfully extended uh, the life of its patents so that it could control pricing you know, beyond patent expiration. A case involving uh, the major rail carriers in terms of whether or not they agreed not to compete on imposing what they termed a, a fuel surcharge, but in fact was uh, inflated additional profit and reaped multiple billions of dollars in excess recovery you know from shippers across the rail industry
0: i think we're involved in that one with you
1: the railroad (laughs) you're excellently represented by steve nilworth and um the other major case right now is on on behalf of um a, a number of global south countries uh against major emitters with regard to uh climate change
0: Mm-hmm. So a climate change case. Yes. Is, is that an antitrust case or sort of a mass no. tort
1: case? Or? No, just a mass tort case.
0: Uh huh. Do you see? Uh, are there particular industries that you have your eye on now, where you think there are any competitive sort of stand out, where there's any competitive practices, and you see opportunities on the plaintiff's of antitrust side?
1: I don't look at them as opportunities. I see challenges. You know, by, by the industry conduct and, and big tech, you know, is clearly one of them. We have uh-huh. since involving Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Meta. Uh, and I think that is going to be a focus of antitrust attention for some some time into the future.
0: Certainly the Biden administration has expressed some interest in, in looking at anti-competitive practices by big tech.
1: Both the Justice Department, uh, Antitrust Division, as well as the Federal Trade Commission, yes, as well as the European Commission.
0: Yeah, has the government actions the government taken have those impacted your practice at all on the on the plaintiff civil side? Yes,
1: particularly right now, mostly in Europe.
0: How so? I mean, in Europe, uh, they're much further behind in the development of uh, private claims and class actions as we know them.
1: Not really. Um, really, class actions possibly, but not in competitor actions. And a lot of the cases that we've prevailed on in Europe have been competitor cases. For example, in, involving unlawful conduct by Google. And there are now competitor cases being investigated uh, against Meta for um, basically being the self-appointed uh, gatekeeper, you know, for uh, entry into, uh, you know, uh, the virtual market.
0: And in the U.S. as well, do you have, has the uh, actions and pronouncements by the Biden administration affected your plaintiff side civil practice in the U.S.?
1: In the cartel area, no. In the big tech area, yes.
0: Have you seen any cases where the government has intervened or filed an expression of interest or actually showed up in any of your cases?
1: Expressions of interest. Have been made by the, the Department of Justice as well as the Federal Trade Commission in some of the cases that you know we're
0: investigating. How does that impact your prosecution of the case? Is it just a message to the court? Do you think that this is a serious matter, or does it make a difference?
1: The Justice Department will not intervene in in a case if you produce materials to them at their request. You know, which interests them in finding their own you know a civil investigation that. Again, may not have any impact with the court, but if the investigation produces an amnesty applicant and and then subsequent guilty pleas, yes, that will have an impact.
0: Well, Michael, this has been very interesting. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it.
1: John, thank you. And I appreciate the opportunity. Please stay well.
0: You've been listening to Law Disrupted with me, John Quinn. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, lawdisrupted.fm. If you enjoyed the show, please share a link on social media and follow at JBQ Law or at Queen Emanuel. Thank you for tuning in.
1: Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by Podcast Partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at
0: podcastpartners.com.